Most importantly, your task is to achieve a unanimous verdict. Ultimately, when you have reached a verdict, you'll then be asked to return to court. And when you're in court, Mr. Fourperson, you'll be asked to stand. And you'll be asked whether you find Mr. Bembo guilty or not guilty of the murder of Michael McGrath. The jury in the trial of the King versus David Charles Benbo retired to consider its verdict on March 29th, 2023. After hearing closing arguments from the prosecution and the defence, they were given instructions by Justice Jonathan Eaton, you just heard some of them then, and sent on their way. Jury deliberations are confidential in New Zealand. No one else is allowed to be privy to their discussions, and afterwards, jurors aren't supposed to talk to anyone else about what was said. But there are some small windows into the process that let the rest of us see a little of what's going on. And for the jury on the David Benbow trial, this is what happened. They came in and out of the jury room over and over again because after more than three days discussing whether Benbo was guilty or not guilty of the murder of Michael McGrath, they still hadn't made up their mind. From Stuff, this is The Trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. Benbow pleaded not guilty and, in early 2023, stood trial. You've now heard all of our coverage of the evidence, so this episode is a bit different. There's the verdict, of course, which we'll get back to in a moment. But if you've been listening to our mini updates, you'll know that this podcast inadvertently became a story itself, which is why we're releasing this episode nearly three months after the trial finished. A couple of expert guests will join me later on to explain exactly what happened and why. For now, though, back to the courtroom. All right, the final part of the summing up, which won't take long, members of the jury, how to approach your task. The jurors, seven men and five women, started deliberations after lunch on March 29th. They had a lot to consider. Remember, the prosecution was based on circumstantial evidence. There was no body, no weapon, no physical evidence at all. Nothing directly tying David Benbow to the disappearance or potential murder of Michael McGrath. The Crown case was basically that the sheer volume of circumstantial evidence was so overwhelming, there was no other explanation for it than that Benbow killed McGrath. The defence countered that it didn't prove a thing. That's the nature of circumstantial evidence. It was only because the Crown had overinterpreted it, the defence said, that they had a murder theory at all. And because of all this, the CCTV footage, the missing gun, the potential witnesses, the love triangle, Benbow's movements, his behaviour, his Google search history, the power usage, the jumper leads, the annihilate comment, and everything else. Justice Eaton told the jury, take your time. No hurry. As I say, don't be overwhelmed. 
there is a lot of material, but ultimately the issues are narrow. Most importantly, your task is to achieve a unanimous verdict. How much time you require to reach a unanimous verdict is entirely a matter for you. There is no rush, there is no time constraint. You take whatever time you need. Members of the jury, will you please retire to consider your verdict? The jury didn't reach a verdict that afternoon. They didn't reach one the next day either, Thursday, March 30. But they did go back into the courtroom that day to review some evidence. Juries can do this as much as they want when they're deliberating, request to see evidence again or maybe ask the judge a question about something. Here, they wanted to listen once more to a recording of a phone conversation between Benbo and a friend from August 2017. How you going? G'day. Uh, I just texted you, did Yeah, This call related to something we covered in the last episode, the police plan to trick Benbo into revealing the site where they believed he'd disposed of McGrath's body. They did this by releasing to the media information that an international body recovery expert was helping the investigation, hoping it would spook Benbo and prompt him to check on this alleged disposal site. On the call, Benbo's friend mentioned the media coverage. We've edited this clip a little for clarity and, by court order, distorted the voice of Benbo's friend. Hey, did you see there was a wee bit on Mike on TV tonight? No, I'm you. Play it on this morning. I'm sort of missed it. So, what are they doing? Yeah. Well, they said that they've brought in an international specialist, and well, that's what they said on the other side. Got international specialist. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh well, we're bleeding no stone unturned. So good. Um, yeah, I think that's the right thing to do anyway, isn't it? Yeah, like if you're turning, leaving no stone unturned and getting someone to review it, then they might find something that they've missed. totally overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. Two days after this call, Benbo made the first of two trips to an area that came up over and again at the trial. It was the Crown's favoured site for the alleged body disposal, south of Christchurch, near the north shore of Lake Ellesmere. Benbo's car, which police had put a tracking device on, stopped at several spots in this area for either a few minutes or a few seconds. The Crown, as you might expect, made a lot of this. Here was a careful but concerned killer checking that the net wasn't closing in on him. The defence countered by arguing that the trips didn't prove anything other than that Benbo probably went driving a couple of times. We don't know why the jury wanted to hear this piece of evidence again, but that makes it all the more tantalising. When you're a reporter waiting for a verdict, Moments like this are little flurries of excitement. Not much else happens, and the media, like nature, abhors a vacuum. So you talk about things like this with your colleagues. What the jury wanted to see, what they asked the judge, what does that mean? They've been out for a while now, more likely guilty or not guilty. It's harmless stuff. Lawyers and cops do it too. This was the only evidence the jury asked to listen to again in the Benbow trial. Afterwards, they went back to the jury room and kept deliberating for the rest of the day. And the next day, Friday, March 31st, 
Late on the Friday, they sent Justice Eaton a message with some questions about reasonable doubt and how to weigh up different pieces of evidence. By this point, they'd been deliberating for 18 hours. It's not uncommon for juries, even in murder trials, to reach a verdict in half or even a third of that time. It seemed clear they were taking their role seriously, but also that it wasn't easy. Up until this point, they had given the impression they were making good progress, but now they were deadlocked on something and trying to find a way through it. The judge sent them home for the weekend. On Monday morning, the judge answered their questions. This is what reasonable doubt means. This is how you consider circumstantial evidence. The jury retired again, but were back again soon after. They told the judge they couldn't reach a unanimous verdict. So Justice Eaton gave them more directions. This time he told the jury that a majority decision would be okay. We've reached a point where it is possible for you to deliver a verdict that 11 of you agree upon. In other words, if only one of your number is in disagreement and the rest of you agree, then you may proceed to a verdict. So I'm going to ask you to retire again, uh, bearing in mind the majority verdict direction that I've just given you. A few hours later, the jury sent the judge a final note. Justice Eaton called all the lawyers and the media back into court to give them the news. Councillor, I've just uh, a few minutes ago received the indication from the jury on the form that they were given that they have not reached a unanimous verdict, they have not reached a majority verdict, uh, and they are unable to reach a verdict. No verdict not a unanimous one or a majority one. After more than 20 hours of deliberating across four days, it was a hung jury. There was only one thing left for the judge to do. All right, thank you, um, Mr. Fourperson, members of the jury, for your indication that you've been unable to reach a unanimous or majority verdict. The reality in this case is that um, it's been a long trial. I know you've paid so much attention to the evidence and to the addresses and to my summing up. I've resolved that we've reached a stage where it's appropriate to discharge you from bringing in a verdict in this case at all, uh, meaning uh, uh, you will be discharged and uh, there will in all likelihood be a, another a trial. Uh, I know that'll be frustrating for you given the attention that you've given to the trial. Uh, don't feel it's a personal criticism at all. And I'm very conscious that each and every one of you have uh, made a very significant personal sacrifice on behalf of yourselves and your families. And I thank you on behalf of the community for the effort that you've, you've put in. But as I've said, in light of where we've got to now, I'm going to, and I do formally discharge you from returning a verdict. Thank you again. Um, you're now free to leave. It was a mundane end to a gripping trial. Not really an ending at all. This whole exercise, a two-month trial, more than 100 witnesses, would likely have to be repeated. 
and outside court, the story kept going because David Benbow, still charged with murder, still out on bail, was also free to leave. Flanked by his lawyers, he emerged from court not long afterwards to the waiting media. How are you feeling, David? Is there anything you'd like to say? Excuse me. Anything you'd like to share with people today? How will you be spending the next couple of weeks? Are you guilty? And that was it. The man at the centre of this trial uttered a total of two words, excuse me, weaved his way through the gaggle of reporters, photographers and cameramen, climbed into the passenger seat of a small green Toyota hatchback and left. The first trial of the King versus David Benbow was over. But for us, there was one more twist. After a judge discharges a jury like this, there's a bit of housekeeping to do in court. Things like scheduling the date of the next hearing and setting Benbow's bail conditions. And the defence raised something else. The concern that the defence have in relation to the podcast is that it details uh, evidence, it's the recordings of, of witnesses, um, evidence during the course of the trial. Yep, this podcast was now a matter before the court. And clearly we are uh, in all likelihood tracking towards another trial taking place. Um, so we, we have got concerns, sir, that, that that should be available and that is something which we would ask for a takedown order in relation to. David Benbow's lawyers said because their client was likely facing another trial, they were worried that the trial, the podcast that is, might unduly influence potential jurors. As such, they wanted it removed from the internet. At this point, we'd already published three episodes and had two more ready to go. Here's what Justice Eaton had to say. All right, well, um, my second reaction is that it should be the subject of a formal application to enable the media to be given on it. I will make an interim order prohibiting any further episodes of the podcast being published in light of the jury today, uh, but with a view to having a priority hearing as to uh, when that order should expire and whether any of the current episodes should be taken down. So that's what happened, and why you didn't really hear from us for nearly three months. An incredible podcast, brilliantly put together and narrated. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details.
Justice Eaton placed a temporary injunction on us releasing any more episodes until the application could be formally heard and we had a chance to respond to it. The hearing was held in late April, about four weeks after the trial, in the same courtroom. Only this time, the only people there were the judge, the lawyers, a registrar, one spectator in the public gallery, and me. By this point, the Crown supported the defence motion. Stuff opposed it, and our lawyer, Daniel Nelson, argued as much. Justice Eaton listened to those arguments, then retired to consider his decision. The entire hearing lasted maybe an hour, but the judge had really as long as he wanted to make a decision. So we waited. Until last week. On June 19th, the judge ruled in our favour. The three episodes already published could stay online, and we could release the rest, including this one. This was the ruling I was referring to at the start of episode 4 and episode 5. Now, I said at the start of this episode that I'd call on some expert help to explain this. So, joining me to talk about what happened and give you a whole lot better insight than I could, I have two guests. First, in Auckland, is Stuff's General Counsel, Genevieve O'Halloran. Hi, Jen. Hi, Michael. And in Wellington, Jamie Herworth, a senior solicitor at Russell McVeigh. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Michael. Uh, Jamie, you can probably also do a better job of this than me. Uh, quickly tell our listeners uh, your background in media law. My name is Jamie Herworth. I'm a UK qualified lawyer practicing in New Zealand. Recently moved to the country and joined Russell McVeigh. My practice is a split of litigation, predominantly in a civil or commercial context and media as well. So I've had some experience over the years of acting for clients that are involved in high profile trials with the kind of significant interplay and, and press involvement. And we can't go on without mentioning this, the Wagatha Christie trial, you had a hand in that, tell us. That's right. Yeah. So I was um, part of the team that acted for Colleen Rooney in her successful defense of the libel claim that was brought against her by Rebecca Vardy and was dubbed in the press as, as Wagatha Christie. So yeah, that, that case, um, you know, the media impact and interplay in it was very significant to the extent that, you know, the court of public opinion became just as important or even more important than the court of law, really. Indeed. And the notoriety of the Benbow trial comes up in this discussion, but I don't think it quite compares to uh, the notoriety of Wake the Christie. Anyway, Jen, let's go back to you first. Uh, you are very familiar with this case and this podcast. Did you have to read every word that I wrote? with a legal eye? Well, look, I would love to take the credit for it, but I am just one cog in the stuff legal machine. Um, and it was meticulously vetted by our senior legal counsel, Courtney Grenfell. Mm, yeah, that, I would have delegated it too. <laughs> and you also oversaw, as we'll get into stuff's response to this takedown application we're discussing. So before we get into our response, uh, we heard a little clip from David Benbow's defence counsel just before when this was first raised in court, but it was a very short clip. So can you just tell us first in a bit more detail, what was the defence seeking with its application and on what grounds? So with this takedown application, the defence was seeking that the three episodes that were already up come down and that the further episodes not be put up, that they were essentially um, held back or it's effectively a suppression application for what's already up and what was yet to come. And their reason for doing this was what exactly? 
Well, as we know, there was a hung trial, which meant that there is to be another um, trial, which is now scheduled for August. At that point, we didn't know when it would be. So the defence application was made out on the grounds that the level of detail about the first trial would be prejudicial to his future trial. So this all happened back uh, at the end of the first trial. So we're talking the first week of April. Stuff opposed the decision when it was eventually heard later that month. What was our argument in response? So there were three planks to our argument. The first was that there was no real risk that jurors would access the podcast. Obviously, the podcast had great uptake. Um, we had a, we had good audience numbers. People were listening to it, but it wasn't the numbers weren't such that you could expect that every person in New Zealand or even even the majority of people had listened to it. And jurors don't know when they're being pulled in for a trial what they're going to be sitting for. So once they are impaneled in the jury, they're given specific directions around what they can and can't do. There are sanctions around disobeying those directions. They take a juror's oath. There are all sorts of things that uh, protect what jurors can and can't hear. So our first argument was there's no real risk that a juror will access the podcast. The second was that even if they did, the content of the podcast would not prejudice Benbow's future trial rights. It was balanced, accurate, fair court reporting. There was nothing in there that would create a real risk of prejudice. And the third was that there was a real public interest in this podcast um, being made available. It offered a, an insight into the workings of the criminal justice system, um, the level of detail meant that it, again, created a really fair and balanced picture of not just Benbow's trial, but of how the justice system works, of how criminal procedure works. Um, so there's a public interest in this kind of reporting being available. Jamie, you've read the decision, but as you see it, having having heard those arguments, then we should say the Crown in principle supported that takedown application. What were the key issues here for Justice Eaton to consider? Yeah, so um, my firm, Russell McVay, we weren't acting in the, in the application, so I'm kind of coming at it from a sort of fresh pair of eyes, as it were. But the, the crux of the judge's decision is at paragraph 56, which acknowledges the party's discomfort about, you know, what having an in-depth podcast running whilst a trial or a retrial is about to take place. But ultimately, the, the judge finds that he's not satisfied having regard to the statutory threshold that the grounds for a takedown have been made out. In a nutshell, the balancing exercise that the court were being asked to perform was, you know, the competing interests of a, a right to a fair trial, which is, you know, a cornerstone of the justice system, as against the right to freedom of expression, which is a cornerstone of a free and democratic society. So that was really the the, the nub of the issue. And there's different factors on each side that the judge would have been required to to balance. So in terms of a right to a fair trial, the judge would be looking at the content, the language and the tone of the publication, the medium that it was delivered. And as Jem was talking about there, the directions that could be given to a jury to, to kind of navigate that issue. On the other hand, you'd have to look at whether the takedown was a limitation of the right to freedom of expression, which would look at open justice, public interest, the interests of victims and others that are affected by you know this trial and how efficient a takedown would actually be in managing the issue at hand which is you know the risk of a, a disobedient juror 
arriving at the retrial with a predetermined aim or, or view on the case. And, and all of that needs to be kind of balanced and considered with the journalist or the press's obligations to report fairly and, and accurately on, on any court trial. So, you know, there's a whole myriad of issues that the judge was, was having to balance here. We should say the judge did, and he intimated that he, he listened, obviously, to the three episodes that had been published at that point. Not an avid podcast listener before this, Justice Eaton, as he admitted in court, but he did listen to them. And, Jen, am I right in saying then that the crux of this was the defence and, by association, the Crown did not articulate a good enough reason why this podcast may have prejudiced a future retrial and the jurors in it? Yeah, there were a couple of elements to this, but I think that's um, a, probably a fair comment. One of the planks of the arguments put forward by the Crown was that it was the medium of podcasting, Yeah, and the judge disagreed with that, so that was really encouraging for us, um, and that was something that we had thought about from the outset when asked to consider this, when we're vetting it, even when the, the very idea of covering the trial came yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. How does this work, podcasting? We're going to be delivering this while the trial's in train. Oh, this is a bit scary. But then we thought about it, we took a step back and we thought, actually, we do court reporting every day in our newspapers, on our websites, the TV news, when there's a big um, trial happening, that could lead one news for six weeks. There's no difference in a podcast that follows a trial, except potentially with the extent, the level of detail that can be included. I think that is one key differentiator between even our newspaper stories or the bulletin that you'll get at 6pm on TV. There's a lot of detail in here. And that was what the defence, and to a certain extent, I think also the Crown, were concerned about, the level of detail. And this is five episodes, six episodes, five of the trial content plus a six wrap-up, about 35 minutes each, a lot more detail than you would get, I think, across any other medium. Um, so there was a lot that was made out of that being potentially prejudicial. Um, and really encouragingly, we put forward our position that actually that was the opposite and enabled us to provide a level of detail to really capture both sides. And ultimately, uh, Justice Eaton agreed with that position. So really encouraging for podcasting and for court reporting generally. I think that the bigger duration you can have in terms of covering these trials, it does tend to suggest that it actually augurs well for your ability to cover a trial rather than the opposite. I think Justice Eason mentioned this in the decision as well, that this was the first takedown application he was aware of, at least, that related to a podcast. Takedown orders, as you guys will know, they happen pretty frequently in court, especially you know media coverage of criminal trials. So, Jamie, Jen touched on it, but why is this decision with the podcast element significant? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I should say as well, as part of the judge's assessment, that the law and the way the case laws developed the balance must be clearly in favour of suppression. So it's a high threshold to meet in order to successfully obtain a takedown order. I mean, as you said, I think it was, you know, first of all, it was interest purely in the fact that this is seemingly the first time that a takedown order has ever been sought in respect of a, a podcast of the court was in kind of un uncharted territory a little bit, which kind of always just adds an extra bit of spice to any kind of set of legal proceedings where there's always legal risk uh, anyway. I think that the crux there is at, at 44 of the judgment where he talks about the key issue for the judge is his assessment of the content and the character of the podcast in question. So this isn't a ruling that just means 
every single trial that ever takes place, any podcast can always cover it in whatever way they, you know, they, they like. That isn't what the decision is. In every single instance, there's going to be an assessment of the facts, which is going to require a detailed consideration of the publication in question. And here it, it happens to be a podcast. In the case law that's come before it, it's primarily a news article that has a limited number of words. They're all written down and it's only got the reader's attention for a few minutes. Here you've got a format where you've got your audience's attention for 30, 40 minutes at a time. There is audio recordings of what happened inside court, which you, you can't obviously get from a written piece of um, press. You've got narrations, summaries, explanations of competing case theories and how the evidence fitted with that. So the you know, the number of editorial decisions I'd imagine that goes into a podcast, Michael, you'll be able to kind of explain just what that, what was involved in that respect really. But you know, the, the number of decisions involved in a podcast is, is huge to be able to ensure that you're fairly and accurately reporting what's gone on because absent a live stream of the entire trial, you're still going to have to make editorial decisions at some point. Yeah, the, the listeners don't need to hear my internal monologue as I'm making editorial <laughs> decisions and torturing myself second by second. But yeah, in essence, you know, the, the assessment that the judge was was having to carry out was much wider in scope than than what would be the case ordinarily. I think as well, from a legal perspective, I found the decision particularly interesting because it's a real life example of the courts and the legal system having to keep up with advancements or, or progress in media or technology or you know even society's demands about how they get the, their news you know previously it was the case that people would be able to attend in court and then there might be a write-up at the time of the decision for instance whereas now people want to learn more not necessarily about who was guilty or not but how they were found guilty and why they were found guilty for me that was a really interesting aspect because the, you know, the legislation that we're talking about here is a 2011 act. I don't think true crime podcasts or courtroom drama podcasts were in existence at, at the point that the legislation's made. So it's a good example of the court having to kind of adapt and react, really. I think it's also interesting, as Jamie's alluded to, that uh, the fact-specific nature of this, our position, state of this quite clearly and the judge said it was a relevant factor that uh, Benbo was not found guilty yeah. previously. So I think it's worth highlighting that had he been found guilty previously, that could have been prejudicial. However, if he had been found guilty previously, there wouldn't probably have been a new trial. Um, it would be an appeal issue and then all of the issues would be completely different. Yeah. I'd also just add as well, in terms of the way that the general kind of progression of the way things are going is that things are only heading really in one direction, I'd say. You know, the, the public generally seems to be very interested in, in true crime or courtroom dramas or content or publications. As a result, the media are going to be wanting greater levels of access to courtroom trials, you know, whether that's attending in court, getting access to the documents that are mentioned. You know, I've been in courtrooms where journalists are live tweeting everything that's said, you know, there's, there's trials where... So Jen and I, our eyes are bulging, as Jamie just said, live tweet. Was that in the UK, Jamie? Yes. Yeah, so th and these not are in, be happening here. Yeah, so these, this is in a civil context as well and, and in the UK where right. journalists are out to live tweet 
you know, I think it was in the Johnny Depp and his um, libel trial against the Sun, where in the UK the transcripts were released at the end of every day. His Johnny Depp's trial in the US with Amber Heard, where it was live streamed. Mm. You know, the Rooney Vardy case that I was personally involved in, the transcripts are now the subject of a Channel 4 TV drama and a West End play. So things are only heading it in one direction. And ultimately, you know, as you know, memory of the legal profession, it's positive that the public are interested in these things. The, the, the real issue is ensuring that there isn't a compromise to, to justice or fairness. And that is, that is a really live issue and, it, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to rumble on for sure. Thank you, Jen. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Michael. And thank you to you, our listeners, for sticking with us through these unlikely twists and turns and delays. We will be back. David Benbow's retrial is scheduled for August 2023. He remains free on bail until then. The prosecution and the defence have both indicated that evidence will likely change a bit, so there'll be updates to bring you. Until then, I'm Michael Wright. You've been listening to The Trial from Stuff, New Zealand's home of true crime podcasts. It was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from the Press Newsroom in Christchurch. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. Visual design was by Catherine George and communications by Candice Robertson. Legal assistance was provided by Genevieve O'Halloran and Courtney Grenfell from Stuff and external counsel Daniel Nilsson. The associate producer was Jen Black, consulting producer Adam Dudding and executive producer Chris Reed. Thanks to John Cooper, Tyson Jemmett, Laura Heathcote, Amanda Montgomery and Philippa Tolley for revoicing some of the witnesses. And special thanks to Kamala Heyman, Martin Van Bainen and Jake Kenny from the press. You can listen to the full series via Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow the show and consider leaving a review recommending it to other people. For more great true crime listening, go to stuff.co.nz podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Trial. If you've made it to the end of this episode, we're assuming the trial is hitting the mark for you. It takes resources and hardworking people to bring you each one of these episodes. So if you think it's fair to support content that keeps you informed and entertained, then support us at stuff.co.nz support. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing.